And so again, Father, we praise you for who you are, the great and glorious God. Lord, you do all things well. And there is nothing hidden from your sight. We praise you that by grace through faith, the truth of your word and the power of your spirit, you have made us come alive again so that we can be more than conquerors in Christ. Thank you that you have supplied all of our needs and that you will be faithful to keep us until that day. We pray now, Lord, as we dive into your word, that you would reveal it to us, that you would convict us where we need to change, that you would draw us to repent where there is sin, that you would cause us to rejoice where there is forgiveness, and that you would give us strength where there is hope. Thank you for all that you have in store for us, Lord God. You are good and we praise you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're just joining us, my name is Pastor Jeremy and we're delighted that you're setting aside time specifically to worship this morning with us at Midland Free. And uh, we look forward to the future and we're hoping to open um, for all the guidelines and Yada, yada. But when that day comes, we are looking forward to seeing you in person live again. But until then, we're so thankful that you've been faithful and consistent and dedicated to worshiping God with your family together here at Midland Free. I don't know about you, but during this coronavirus time, it's been a little bit tricky for our family to figure out what to do. Of course, we've gone on a number of bike rides and walks and to the park and this and that. But many of our regular haunts are closed and still um, shut down for business, and as a result, we have to be creative. Obviously, there's film options, and we've looked at many of those, but it's hard for us as a family who's very diverse in our um, ages and styles and personalities to find one film that we all agree upon. Well, I've got the perfect film for you. <laughs> Not exactly. But we did find one that we enjoyed, and of course we don't agree with everything in it, and you watch it like any other film, as a Christian, with a biblical worldview, and you filter the stuff that's true, and you throw away that stuff that's not, and you can talk about it to your kids and say why we believe this, why we don't believe that, what do we like, what do we not like, etc. But with all of that in mind, here's a film that my family watched and enjoyed. It was a G-rated film that all of us took part in and it was it was the new Aladdin with Will Smith as the genie and it was a lot of fun because it's a Disney musical with all of the great cinematography and music and dancing and there's a lot of big numbers in there that remind you of some Broadway musical that make me personally just want to like get up and dance and stomp and do all these fun things. Well, you probably don't see me do that on Sunday morning, but it's been known to happen a time or two in my own home. In fact, when I'm walking down the hallway, if there's nobody around, or even if there is, I might just start bellowing out. Prince Ali, mighty is he, Ali Ababwa. <laughs> oh boy, I just did that on camera. 
But I enjoyed the song, and it's a huge song. It's a big number, and it's really fun because it starts out with all this color and dancing and costumes and animals and parade, and it's just big and amazing. And the point is, in all of that grandeur, is to introduce this amazing prince. The lyrics of the song say something like this. They say, make way for Prince Ali. Say, hey, for Prince Ali. Make way. Here he comes. Ring the bell. Bang the drums. Prince Ali, mighty is he, Ali Ababwa. You know, strong as ten regular men, definitely. He faced the galloping hordes. A hundred bad guys with swords who sent those goons to their lords. Why, Prince Ali. It describes his power and his strength. And then it goes on to describe his wealth. In addition to being good-looking and handsome and powerful, this prince is also infinitely resourceful. He's got 75 golden camels. I mean, why not? If you have no place else to put your gold, why not make a golden camel? Who knows? And why one? Why not 75? And when it comes to exotic mammals, he's got a zoo. I'm telling you, a world-class menagerie. He's got 95 white Persian monkeys. And to view them, he charges no fee. Why, Prince Ali, Amarasi, Ali Ababwa, genuflect, show some respect, down on one knee. What an amazing guy. Obviously, it's make-believe and it's a lot of fun. But I think there's something there and there's a reason why the human spirit or psyche identifies with that. And I think, among other reasons, two of the ones that were pressed upon me is power and wealth. Power and wealth. Now, why is it that we probably all long for power and wealth? Is it just that we're greedy and sinful and bad and we want to hurt other people? Well, there's some of that. But that's not all. I think it's also the fact that in the possession of power, what we recognize is our desire for deliverance. That the chains that hold us, that the things that bind us, that the restrictions that hold us in and the things that hold us back need to be broken and they need to be destroyed. And for us to experience freedom, there has to be some power greater than ourselves that can release us. And we look at someone else. We say, boy, do they have that power? You pick up the Midland Daily News and you see an article on the 50 richest people in the whole world. Say, wow, what power they must have. What wealth, what affluence, what resources. Oh, if only we had that, maybe then. And we look at wealth, not just because we want money on the table, but because in that financial position, we imagine that there is comfort, security, assurance, and hope because those infinite resources will provide for all of our needs. And so what we see in those things, whether it's power or wealth, is is sort of the, the fix of our problems. In the power, we see the deliverance. In the wealth, we see the resources. And, and if we were delivered, and if we were provided for, forever and ever, and had nothing to worry about, then we could be so happy and so peaceful and so at rest. Man, Prince Ali, that's the type of guy I'm after. I mean, somebody with 75 golden camels, that's pretty good. 
I need someone like that to deliver me, to save me. And not just me, but all of our society, all of the injustice, all of the racism, all of the greed, all of the evil, all of the bad things that are out there. We need a righteous ruler to come and serve and live as a just king and judge. Someone to do what nobody else has ever done before. To rule righteously from beginning to end. From the Alpha to the Omega. From A to Z. We need that hero. We need that superhero. We need that Messiah, anointed one, or king. This is what the people in the book of Mark are looking for. In the book of Mark, they are anticipating the coming of what they call the Messiah or the Christ, which basically means an anointed one, and we think of anointed one, and we still aren't really familiar with that in our society, but basically in theirs, it was either a prophet, a priest, or a king, and in this case, most emphatically, they were looking for the king. They wanted someone to come and deliver them from their oppressors, the people of Rome. And they begin to look at this guy named Jesus, and they first start to acknowledge him as a prophet. They're like, wow, he's saying things that only someone sent from God could say. And Jesus begins to deliver a message and he shows that he is the prophet. And they haven't exactly acknowledged him as a priest, but as you look at the movement of this book, what you see is that it's going somewhere for sure. Jesus is doing things that nobody else has ever done before. He healed a blind person. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, confesses Jesus to be be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus himself goes by the title Son of Man, which may or may not have been recognized back then and certainly isn't now. But if you dig deeper in Scripture, what you see in Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 is that that title specifically refers to an end-time ruler or judge, someone who will come at the appropriate time and make everything right. Is this unique, all-powerful, anointed one. So as the blind healer, as the confessed Christ, as the Son of Man, this guy comes and begins talking about the kingdom of God. Everything in this passage, in this section, in this book, is moving towards a messianic or a kingdom purpose. Jesus is demonstrating himself to be on a mission and it's moving in that way. And so the people are starting to pick up on this, not entirely exactly as he would have them, but they are noticing there is something very different about this guy. So they become hopeful. Perhaps this is the guy who will deliver us from Rome. This is the one who will Free us from our oppressors. This is the one who will establish the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem as it was promised to David and Solomon. This could be the Messiah. And so they're excited. And they're looking for Jesus to do that, to literally come riding in on a white horse and conquer their enemies. And this is what they expect.
Now, as you know, our expectations rarely, if ever, match our reality. Is that the case for you? I know that's the case for me. What I have in mind versus what is real hardly, if ever, happens. Such was the case for the people in Christ's day as well. They're expecting the Messiah. They're expecting the almighty, all-powerful ruler to come in and conquer his enemies. And what Jesus does in this next section is to set their expectations straight. So let me read to you from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and following. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. It's the 8th chapter of the book of Mark, beginning verse 31. Near the end of the chapter, we'll read up to chapter 9. Mark chapter 8, beginning in 31. Jesus sets their expectations straight. It says this, And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is shamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So their expectations are that the Messiah would come and rule and reign and all would be well after that. But what Jesus actually says is that the Son of Man, this anointed expected figure, is going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Now that doesn't fit with their mindset. It doesn't fit with their mindset because suffering and having it made in the shade don't exactly go together. They're expecting 75 golden camels. They're expecting this exotic menagerie. They're expecting this guy to have infinite resources. And he's telling them that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's going to suffer. His life is going to be miserable. Please. Follow me. He's telling them that he's going to be rejected. He's telling them that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders will completely reject him. 
we look at leadership, a lot of times we expect the best leaders to build consensus and have people rally around them and drawn to them. And that everyone will follow them because of their natural charisma or brilliant process or implementation or strategies or whatever. And what this is saying is that Jesus, the best leader ever, was rejected by all of the leaders of his day. Doesn't exactly fit. It also says that he will be killed. Now this certainly doesn't fit with our idea of the king. Our idea of a king is long live the king. Long live the king. May his reign and rule last forever and ever. But Jesus has just come in to his disciples, to the people around them, and to us and said, look, the real anointed one, the Messiah, the the one who can deliver you, this one is going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Clearly, Jesus does not fit with their expectations. Jesus does not fit with their expectations, and he doesn't fit with our expectations either. And Before we quickly condemn them, we need to look in the mirror and understand that the pictures we have created of Jesus are probably no more accurate. I'll give you two. There are probably many more, but here's a couple of examples of where I believe Jesus of the Bible does not fit with our conception of Jesus today. And one of one of the clearest is this, is the American form of Christianity. Now, perhaps you've traveled outside the United States and you've seen believers in other countries with much less than what we have and been impressed by their faith. And that's a great experience because what it does is it causes you to look at your culture and the things around you and say, what is essential? Or why do we have this? Or why do, what, what's the point? And yet we turn on the TV and we turn on the radio and we turn on the marketing messages and they're all telling us, live the dream, live the dream. And the big beautiful picture of the beach comes up and there's crystal clear water and white sands and a palm tree and a nice big boat they're saying for only this much you can live the dream come to our vacation come to our theme park live it up have fun enjoy your life you deserve it it's so attractive we want that we desire that and indeed all of us suffer and all of us need rest there's nothing wrong with rest but the reality is The way this is being sold to us is this is all there is and this is the best there is and the more you have of it, the better. And so as Christians, we constantly fight or push back against that because inside our soul, our flesh is waging war against us and it's telling us that, hey, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a Christian and enjoy all the things of this world. You can be a Christian and enjoy life. You can be a Christian and be blessed. But what we read in this chapter, doesn't look like that. What I see here is Jesus calling on his followers to deny themselves. What I see here is Jesus calling on his followers to pick up their cross. What I see here is Jesus calling on his followers to follow him and deny himself, 
deny themselves and even deny fun. He's telling them following Jesus is not always fun. It's going to be hard. It won't be easy. There will be suffering. And this cross is something that we wear in jewelry and we think is beautiful. But in reality, in that time period, was the most hideous and ugliest thing you could possibly imagine. Pick up this cruel instrument of torture and carry on. This is the call to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. Constantly war against the flesh and the desires that are telling you you deserve it, you earned it, you should have it, and give it up. Die to that. Jesus does not fit our American version of Christianity. He just doesn't. He does not look like that. He does not talk like that. He does not function like that. He does not think like that. There is nothing about our whitewashed American Christianity that looks like Christ. He's different. He doesn't fit our American Christianity. He also doesn't fit our view of the Messiah. We can look at these people and say, hey, look at how he didn't, you know, Jesus didn't fit with the expectation of the Messiah, but look at our expectations. A lot of times our expectations are, Oh, you know, this guy is like the ultimate pastor. He's just such a nice guy. All he does is smile and coddle his sheep. And he has beautiful flowing hair and a great charismatic grin. He's so gentle and kind. He would never say a harsh word. You look at this text, and I pick up my Bible. I read in verse 33, where Jesus says to his closest follower, Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That's what I call confrontation. That's not exactly coddling. That is an aggressive, clear, and stern rebuke. And Jesus did that too. And in our pictures of Jesus, we need to include that. He is not a pacifist. This is the Messiah who will come and judge and make war and establish his rule on our planet. And he is Messiah only to those who would accept him. Look at the next verse. Verse 38 says this. It says, For Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. In other words, if you don't accept Jesus, he's not going to accept you. That's what the Bible says. But we got a lot of people out there saying that all roads lead to heaven and everything's the same and nothing's different. It doesn't matter and whatever. One face is good as another. And Jesus says that he is the only way. So for all of those ideas of inclusivism or ecumenicalism, the reality of the Bible is this, is that Jesus is the only way. And he makes it very clear. Jesus does not fit ancient conceptions of the Messiah and he doesn't fit modern conceptions of the Messiah. He is not the made in the shade Messiah. 
He is not the American Christian Messiah. He's not the Mr. Nice Guy Messiah. And almost inevitably, whatever box you make to put him in, he will not fit. Jesus has never fit our box and he never will. He is Jesus. He is infinite. And beyond all understanding. But there are some things he reveals to us and and this is one of them. When he's talking to them, he says, hey look, here's what you guys expect. There are these. There are these expectations which are generally wrong. But there is, on the other hand, reality. And that reality is summed up by one teeny tiny four-letter word. Do you know what it is? M-U-S-T. Must. Must. The reality that Jesus is breaking through to his disciples is that despite their conceptions of who they think he is, there is something that must, absolutely must happen. The Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must be rejected. The Messiah must be killed. The salvation of humanity, redemption of the cosmos, defeat of sin and death, destruction of wickedness and the removal of pain, the restoration of peace, harmony, unity, love and justice in the universe forevermore require the suffering, rejection and death of Christ. This is the overarching or overruling purpose of God that the Messiah must suffer. This is a really big corrective both to the disciples and to us because more often than not our expectation or our desire is to be pain free. We want to live a life of ease and we want to experience perfection but we don't want to go through difficulty to get there. But in reality, what Jesus is saying here is that old mantra, no pain, no gain. No guts, no glory, no cross, no crown. Even for Jesus. I know that's really hard to imagine because he is perfect from forever, eternity past, into forever, eternity future. And yet, In some strange and mysterious way, only understood by God, the Bible says he was perfected through suffering, that the Messiah must suffer. For the overarching, overruling purposes of God to happen, Jesus had to suffer. If he didn't have to suffer, and if there was another way, God surely would have done it. 
But because this was the only way Jesus chose to submit to his Father and endure the shame for the glory ahead. Jesus must suffer, and like Jesus, we too must suffer as well. For Jesus, his suffering led to our salvation, and for us, our suffering leads to our sanctification. If Jesus chose not to go to the cross, we could never be saved. If we choose the life of ease and reject the difficulty of following Christ, we too may never be saved. If we decide we want to stick to the status quo and never grow, we will be comfortable. We will exist in a state of ease. But we will never be sanctified to become more like Christ. And that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think is what's happening right now. I would call the time period we're living in an accelerated state of change. There are things that have been swept under the rug for a long time, both nationally and politically and individually. And having been dumped into the crucible or catalyst of the coronavirus, we are now being heated up And all of that bad stuff is boiling up to the surface. And it's that crucible that God is using to refine us. He is accelerating our sanctification. He is accelerating change in our society. He is accelerating change in our world. Something is happening. And I don't know exactly what day Christ is coming back. I'm not even going to pretend to say that. But the reality is we know that he will. And so in our current state, I believe we have to admit, we have to follow, we have to submit, we have to deny ourselves and say, yeah, this is God's will. And we may not understand it, but we believe that he is doing a good thing by leading us through this and refining us along the way. Messiah had to suffer, and we get to suffer too. But it doesn't end there. And here's the good news along with that, is that just like Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will we be raised from the dead as well. The Bible essentially speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the linchpin of Christianity. In other words, Everything hangs or falls on this. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then everything's okay. But if he hasn't, then it's all a wash. But if he is risen, then there is a guaranteed hope of victory. There is a future vindication. There is a happily ever after forevermore. And just like Jesus, so too with we, so too with us. And it's so cool to see how in this book of Mark, the movement progresses where he's unrecognized at first and then he does bigger and bigger things, draws more attention to himself. And eventually, everyone turns upon him. He is rejected and killed, but that's not the final word. Instead, for those who sat in judgment upon him, his resurrection means that he will sit enthroned in judgment upon them. 
The resurrection is the victory and vindication of our Lord. As you get ready to go throughout the rest of your week, I don't know what circumstance you're walking into or what situation you're in, but if you're like me, there are probably times where you're calling out for help. You're looking for someone more powerful and more resourceful than yourself. As you walk into those situations this week, I just encourage you to look to Jesus. That suffering is not a sign of shame, but instead there is value and purpose and meaning in every trial we face. Thinking about that song, Prince Ali, earlier, I wonder if it could be better written, perhaps like this, make way for Prince Jesus. Say, hey, for Prince Jesus, make way, here he comes, ring the bell, sound the drums. It's Prince Jesus. Prince Jesus, mighty is he, Alpha Omega. Stronger than 10 million men, definitely. He faces the galloping hordes, chased off the devil with swords. Who sent that goon to their Lord? Why, Prince Jesus. Prince Jesus, amorous he, Alpha Omega. Prince Jesus, fabulous he, Alpha Omega. Genuflect, show some respect, down on one knee. Prince Jesus, mighty is he. In final summary, I just say this. Look, Messiah must, we must. This is reality. He suffered, we're going to suffer. He was rejected, we're going to be rejected. He died, we're going to die. But the irony is this. If you make it to death, that means you survived. If you stay true to Christ your entire life and follow him no matter what, then your job is done. And he'll take it from there. If you make it to death, you've survived. The goal in the Christian life is to be faithful to the very end. And you can bet that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Messiah must, we must. Christ suffered, we'll suffer. Christ was rejected, we'll be rejected. Christ was killed, we'll die. But Jesus was resurrected, and so too will we. That perspective balances our expectations and gets us back to reality. No pain, no gain, no guts, no glory, no cross, no crown. As with Jesus, so too with us. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for all the good people that you brought, Lord, to hear your word today. We know there's a lot in there and a lot to think about. and Perhaps I haven't even summarized it as well as I could or should, but I pray that whatever was said here today would land in such a way as to bear fruit. 
that hearts would hear and lives would change. We would see the importance of conforming our expectations and our lives to you, the real Jesus, the mighty one, the Messiah, the one who suffered and died and rose and is coming again to deliver us and save us from all of our sin. In him and him alone we placed our trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.